Well, I think, I think we may as well start, ladies and gentlemen. And first of all, welcome to Oxford, for those of you who are not inhabitants of this wonderful city. Um, and thank you very much for coming along on what's a gloriously sunny afternoon. You're cooped up inside, so I hope we will make it worth your while. Um, my name is Dorothy Bishop, and I'm a professor of developmental neuropsychology here in the experimental psychology department in Oxford. I was a student here many, many years ago, back in the 1970s. Um, I then trained as a clinical psychologist in London for a couple of years and subsequently did a doctorate here back in Oxford. I've also worked for quite extended periods um, in the University of, of Newcastle upon Tyne and Manchester and Cambridge uh, and now I'm back again in Oxford for about 10 years funded by the Wellcome Trust uh, as a principal research fellow and uh, it's a great pleasure to be here and to be able to show you some of the sort of things we're doing in our, my research group and the sort of areas of research that have been possible to develop while I've been here. So I'm going to be talking about language disorders in children. And first of all, I should point out that this is really a Cinderella subject, I think. Um, one of the commonest reasons why people go to their general practitioner with concerns about a preschool child is that the child is not learning to talk on the approved timetable, if you like, when they're expected to talk. Um, and typically there is no obvious cause for this and in many cases it is that the child is just a late starter and things sort themselves out. Often it's not a cause for concern. Uh, but there are children in whom these problems persist and can have long-term adverse consequences. But this condition which is really very common and has been estimated to affect as many as 7 to 10 percent of children is much less well known than say developmental dyslexia or autism. Uh, despite being more common than autism and being closely allied with dyslexia. And you can do the, what I call the taxi driver test. The taxi driver says, well, what do you do then? And you say, I work on language impairments in children. What's that, they say? Which you wouldn't get if you said dyslexia or autism. So I'm going to try and redress the balance a bit today and get you interested in this common but under-researched disorder. And... Part of the problem is terminology, which is quite variable from um, place to place and country to country, but most of the people in the field, I think, have now settled on this term of specific language impairment, which is used to describe the child who presents with slow or disordered language development, but where there's no obvious cause that you can detect. So what you typically will do is to check that the child hasn't got a hearing loss that could explain this, doesn't have part of, it's not part of a broader syndrome such as autism, it's not part of a general developmental delay, and it's not caused by some physical abnormality that affects, for example, the ability to speak. And typically these children are on a normal schedule of development in other areas, so they will be walking and looking after themselves and so on, on schedule for their age. And interestingly, for those of us uh, fascinated about how the brain learns language, there are some aspects of language that tend to give more problems than others. Having said that, these children can be really quite variable, and you can't say that they're all the same. But the things you most commonly see are these areas of problem. Particularly when children are younger, there's difficulty with producing speech sounds. And people often assume that this is something to do, they say, is it tongue-tie, or is it something physical? But it's not typically. It's more a problem in just learning 
to listen for the right things in what you're hearing and reproduce those sounds yourself. Uh, <clears throat> syntax is the other area that's often difficult. Um, so word or syntax includes both use of word order and use of inflections and things like case marking to express meanings. And um, word order isn't so often a problem, but what you often see are children who will omit inflectional endings and will perhaps use the wrong case. So they might say, him go there rather than he go there, he goes there. And just to give you a further example of a problem with phonology, if a child was telling you Goldilocks and the Three Bears story, they might say, Goldilocks and if he bared, which is actually just a very immature way of saying that. You wouldn't worry about a two-year-old talking like that, but if it gets to a, an older child who's still talking that way at the age of four, five, six, it starts to appear much more abnormal. And then this grammatical difficulty I mentioned, so you get things like the child who says, my brother like chocolate, rather than my brother likes chocolate. Omission of past tense endings. Yesterday I walk to school, yesterday, rather than yesterday I walked to school. Or as the same as I just mentioned, things like him go to the park rather than he go to the park. They don't do this all the time, which is one of the more fascinating things. It's not that the child just can't put on inflections. A lot of the time they will use inflections appropriately. But more often than you would expect in other children, you see these sorts of things. So um, I'm going to play you some examples, which I have to confess I had to download from YouTube because I was concerned about uh, confidentiality issues with the children that we see. Um, but they illustrate quite nicely some of these phenomena. So this is a little girl who um, is about four years of our age. And with luck, we will see her trying to tell not Goldilocks and the three bears, but the three little pigs. Right, I think I cut it off at that point. She does go on at some length, but she's very charming. Um, in fact, the comments on YouTube, quite a few people commented. They all said, what a gorgeous child. And several people said, there's nothing wrong with this little girl. Which, uh, uh, at one level, they may well be right, because she's still very young. And talking like this when you're age three or four, we've found in studies, you may not look like other three or, most other three or four-year-olds, but many children will start slowly and then do fine. Um, but as I said before, if she's going to continue like, talking like this when she goes into school, for example, then they're the children where we start to be concerned because typically they don't just catch up. But there is a big variation in normal development in terms of ages at, at mastering language. But this certainly is late. And given that she's a very bright, ebullient little girl in other respects and doesn't seem and it's very sociable, it stands out as a specific problem. Now, in her case, she did appear to have predominantly just problems with talking and getting her sentences right and getting her sounds right. But in some children, the problems actually extend to understanding as well as producing language. And we can test that using tests that don't, in fact, involve any, spoken, any requirement on the child to speak. So this is the sort of thing we might ask a child to show us the horse is pushed by the girl to select it from this array. We'll typically give them a number of items testing different sorts of things, uh, and we know from studies of typical children what's reasonable to expect from children of different ages. And it's quite common to find that alongside problems with producing language, there may be problems with understanding language. But the issues that uh, I want to address today is what we can understand about what causes SLI, what causes specific language impairment. 
And there's a lot of answers that seem terribly obvious but turn out to be wrong. Um, and one that drives me insane with the frequency with which it comes up in the media is that it's that parents don't talk to their children. And um, this, every few years, some expert stands up and says, we're facing an epidemic of language disorders in our children because parents have stopped talking to their children. And there was an this is just an instance from the media a few years ago um, where we were told there was not enough talking. Chil parents were grunting at their children um, and damaging their language development, parking them in front of the television, and that this was causing major problems. Um, the difficulty is that this is described as research, but actually um, it's typically people's opinions, and there isn't good hard evidence that there has been any change or any epidemic of language disorders or any difficulty of that kind. Um, and there's evidence against it, in fact, because if you want to test this idea, you can start looking at uh, children who develop adequate language despite very variable levels of spoken language from their parents. And one way to do that is to just see what happens in different cultures. Um, there are cultures, according to anthropological research, where it's really not regarded as a good idea to talk to a young child, um, and where it's more traditional to, pray, for example, strap your infant on your back and sort of basically leave them there feed them, and so on, but not really converse with them, not do all the things that we think of as terribly important to do with babies. Um, and these children seem to grow up okay and learn to talk, despite really having parents who think there's no point in talking to a child until they can talk back to you. Um, <laughs> perhaps also more um, interestingly, there are twin studies which show that there are cases where you get dizygotic twins, twins who are not identical, growing up in the same environment, growing up together in the same household, and yet one of them has got specific language impairment and the other is entirely normal in terms of their language. And um, we also have the case of children... Ah, I briefly saw a cursor. Oh, it's disappeared again. <laughs> children with exceptional circumstances, including hearing children of deaf parents. Child with receptive language disorders coming up, we hope. So she was, this is his mum as well, it's not some sort of person trying to do a test with him, really trying to sort of tell him, you know, how to transform his act. And he kept saying, because something or other, or at one point I think he said ice cream, he didn't really seem to understand the question at all. Uh, and that's a sort of quite extreme example of comprehension problems where you really feel, you know, what is it about it he can't understand? And you might think, is he deaf? But apparently not. Um, he's been tested and can hear okay. Uh, so this is really quite disturbing when you get a child who seems to have so much trouble understanding. Um, now what I want to contrast that with is a much older child, again if I can find, I'm getting nervous about this cursor, it's gone again, <laughs> um, who uh, is, is, there we go. This is a, a teenage boy, but he's a boy growing up with two parents who themselves are profoundly congenitally deaf and who principally sign. So he gets a lot of signed language input. His parents are extremely communicative with him, but what he doesn't hear is a lot of speech. And children like this, when they, when about sort of the 1970s, when I started in this field, a lot of people were concerned that this could be very bad for them because they would not develop normal spoken language if they were only exposed to sign language and not or not very uh, um, easy to understand speech from their parents. But the amazing thing was the few studies that were done suggested this wasn't the case at all and that these children in general were really developing okay. As you can see from this boy, um, 
so these children with hear, these hearing children of deaf parents. Okay, so I think this, this really challenged ideas that the children need a lot of clear spoken language input at home in order to develop normal spoken language themselves. And it, obviously this boy is getting spoken language input from the television, from people other than his parents, and he's getting an awful lot of communicative input from his parents through sign language. But it does seem that that is sufficient, and so it makes it much more uh, unreasonable to think that some sort of grunting at your child and putting them in front of the television is enough to cause a serious language disorder. So the next thing you might think is possibly implicated is some kind of brain damage. Um, and this idea is a very old idea. It's been around really since about the 1950s. And again, it, it makes a lot of sense, but it turns out not to seem to work in this case. But this was the idea that was advanced, um, by the, uh, that, that there might be some sort of so-called continuum of reproductive casualty, by which they meant that we know of cases where, at the time of birth, a child's brain is damaged uh, because they're very premature and the brain bleeds, or because of anoxia or something like that. And we know that if you have severe cases like this, it can cause major problems in the child and brain, obvious brain damage and neurological difficulties. But the idea was suggested that maybe smaller degrees of less obvious uh, trauma could perhaps cause milder things, like the sort of learning difficulties that are involved um, in various specific learning difficulties, including specific language impairment. And this slide just shows you an instance of intraventricular hemorrhage here. That's a very common thing in very premature children, that they, you get some sort of bleeding into the brain which you can see around the time that they're born, but then subsequently it wouldn't be particularly obvious, for example, on a brain scan. So you think, well, maybe this is what the sort of thing that's been going on. However, uh, there really have been a number of studies now looking just at the birth histories of children uh, with specific language impairment, and they really seem rather unremarkable in most cases. Uh, you're not seeing an excess of premature children or children who had... Um, deprivation of oxygen or anything like that. And perhaps, again, the other interesting piece of evidence is to turn it on its head and say, um, well, what about children who do have brain lesions? What happens to their language? And there is perhaps the most surprising piece of evidence because here is a picture of um, a brain from somebody who has, as you can see, had half the brain removed. It's a fairly dramatic procedure that you wouldn't undertake lightly, but which is sometimes undertaken in childhood, where a child has a, a very serious uh, malformation of the brain um, that, are, that causes chronic epilepsy, and you're, you're left with a child where the epilepsy itself is further damaging the brain, and uh, the drugs that they're given to control the epilepsy are also uh, causing a lot of problems. And so it can happen in these very unusual cases that the decision is made that the best treatment is actually to remove half the brain. And you would have thought, if you do that, that's going to be catastrophic for language learning. But surprisingly enough, it was shown way back in the 1950s with a whole series of children who had this procedure done, that um, it does not necessarily compromise language development, even if the left side is removed. And we know that in most people, it is the left side of the brain that is most important for language functioning. So, and this reflects the amazing plasticity of the brain, as it's called. Um, it's, it's really just that it's not fixed at the time of birth which bit of the brain is going to do what. And so you can get a reorganisation of a damaged brain, provided this happens early in life. 
So what that starts to say to us is, well, how come some of these children have got language problems? Why don't their brains reorganise? And the answer seems to be that they don't have any stimulus to reorganise because they are not actually damaged brains. They're brains that are just developing differently. Whoops. Um, my colleague, Christiana Leonard, who works at the University of Florida, is one of the people who's done the most studies of a range of uh, learning disabilities, including language problems, and said that when she started out in this field, she was doing neuroanatomical um, studies, staring at these uh, brain scans of these children, uh, and she said she expected to find holes in the brain, or something that you could see, because these were children who were really quite impaired. Uh, but she said that's not what they found. What they found sometimes was a just rather ab unusual and atypical pattern in the brain of um, the gyri and the salsias of the convolutions of the brain might look a little bit atypical. But it, you couldn't say, this is the brain of a dyslexic person or this is the brain of somebody with specific language impairment. There's a lot of variation and certainly there was no one-to-one -one correspondence between uh, what you saw on the brain scan and what you uh, saw in terms of the behaviour. And this is an ongoing project. We have, uh, at the moment, a collaborative project with her to look at brain scans for some of the children that we're working with. And it's clear that there's much more variation between families than there is within families, uh, uh, so that there's huge individual variation in brains, just as there is in things like faces, with a lot of family resemblance. But it's actually proving very hard to pinpoint something distinctive about the brain of a child with SLI. We're also doing a study with my colleague in psychology, Kate Watkins, who's an expert of bra on brain scanning with uh, children, where we've got uh, not just the children with SLI, but their siblings and their parents. We try and get the entire family into a brain scanner, which is no mean feat, um, takes most of the day. Uh, but we again find no gross differences. You could look at these brains, and even somebody who's quite experienced at looking at brains, such as Kate, would not be able to say this is, whether it's a brain of a child with specific language impairment or a control brain, just from looking at it, which is in some ways reassuring, I think, for parents of ch who have children who have these problems. What we do start to see, um, and we're still, this is still a project underway, but there seems to be evidence that what we're seeing are rather, rather subtle differences in the distribution of grey matter in different regions of the brain, including the language areas, and if we actually do scanning while somebody's doing a task, so we can look at how the uh, brain metabolism changes as you do a language task, we can show that there's less activation in language areas from the people who have got language problems. Although at one level you could say, maybe that's not surprising, they've got language problems, they show less language activation. So it's not sure whether we're measuring cause or effect of their problems. But the structural differences are there, but they are very subtle. And so we're currently looking also, uh, we're pursuing this line of work, and we're also interested in the idea that maybe that the connections between different brain regions are what are different, rather than there being, again, this sort of notion of holes in the head. But overall, I would say we can sum up by saying that the evidence points to fairly subtle problems with early neurodevelopment and connectivity between different brain regions, rather than brain damage in these children. So that then raises the question... How do we get there? I mean, why, why do these children have these problems? And the answer would appear to be that you're likely to have some sort of genetic basis for these disorders uh, rather than something that's acquired. Not necessarily followed, but it's clearly a line to pursue, and it certainly converges with other lines of evidence <coughs> suggesting that genes may be implicated. So I'll move on now to say something about work on genetics in this area.
So many years ago, um, there were, well, 1980s, there were these studies uh, done, uh, a number of studies, three in the States, one by me in the UK, where we were just taking groups of children with language impairments and a control group of similar social background and counting the number of relatives that they had who had similar problems. And I did this as part of a much broader study. I was studying a large group of children when I was up in the northeast of England, uh, and I really had a questionnaire that asked about almost everything you could possibly imagine, including their birth histories, their illnesses that they'd had, aspects of the home environment, etc., etc. But it included this question about you know, anybody else in the family who having problems. And this was the one question that differentiated the groups. So it was the case that you had about 24% of relatives of children with SLI had some sort of speech and language problem themselves, whereas it was about only 3% of the con in the control group. And as you can see, these other studies done in the States, the differential is there in every one. The absolute levels tend to vary, but I think that's largely just because people vary in the criteria that they adopt for deciding whether or not you've got a problem. So um, that starts to suggest it's at least compatible with the idea that genes might be implicated. But then you could say, well, it's not compelling because families share a lot of things other than their genes. Their nutrition, their living circumstances, all sorts of other things could be involved. So you really want to move to a situation where you can start separating out genetic and environmental influences. Unfortunately, we have this method that's been around for many, many years that starts to give us a handle on that separation. And that is to start studying twins. And um, people in this area love twins because they're a natural experiment that's just out there waiting to be capitalized on because nature has provided us with two types of twins. So we've got monozygotic twins who are genetically identical, or nearly so. There are debates about whether they're really identical, but they're certainly uh, made by the splitting of a single fertilized egg, and so about as identical as you can get. And they, they're the ones that look identical. But then we have the dizygotic twins, who are like brother, any other brother or sister pair, um, and so they are more or more similar than random members of the general population, but um, they're not as similar as these guys. They share, to put it, to put it um, officially, they, they share, on average, 50% of their polymorphic genes. And I found that this really does need explaining, because it confused me for years um, that people would say, well, you, you know, brothers and sisters have, on average, 50% of their genes in common. And then somebody would come and say, humans have got 98% of their genes in common with a chimpanzee. And I thought, there's something wrong here. <laughs> uh, and indeed, I think somebody worked out that we share something like 40% of our genes with a daffodil. So <laughs> what does this mean? Well, what it means is that there are two sorts of genes, basically. There are genes that are the same, take the same form in everybody. Um, they're so important for building bodies and bits of bodies that if you get a mutation, you typically would die. And so we all have exactly the same form. Now, genes like that can't possibly explain individual differences between people because we're all the same. So it's only a small proportion of the genome where the genes vary from one person to another, and you can have slightly different sequences of DNA depending on who you are. And those are the ones that we call polymorphic, and that's the only bit of the genome that geneticists like me, or I'm not a geneticist, but geneticists and people like me would refer to when they say about this 50% figure. It's 50% of the ones that do vary. So that makes much more sense in the context of the chimpanzee. 
Now, twins are interesting because when you say to people you work with twins, they say, well, it must be very hard to find these twins that are separated at birth. <laughs> I don't even begin to try to do that. We study twins who are growing up together in regular situations. Uh, but the interesting thing is you can still learn a lot from twins who are growing up together. You're going to expect them to be similar, any pair of twins, because they share a lot of environmental factors. So um, that will make, you know, if you've got the same sort of television-watching parents who grunt at you and dump you in front of the television, or parents who are very concerned about making sure you get lots of linguistic stimulation, that's likely to affect the two twins growing up together. So twins are expected to be similar. But the interest is in uh, the difference between in similarity for the monozygotic and dizygotic, because uh, if one group is more similar to each other than the other, that does start to suggest that it's genes that are important, particularly if you focus attention just on the same-sex ones, because otherwise you get confounded with sex differences. So the same-sex ones are all dizygotic, so we just look at same-sex dizygotic versus monozygotic. And I won't uh, bore you with details of the more sort of mathematical and statistical analyses that you can do to get out estimates of, of genetic influence, which uh, I'll have a reference list available on the web if people want to pursue that. But the bottom line, really, the most important thing to remember is that that is the, the logic of the method, is, is you really just say you take pairs of monozygotic and pairs of dizygotic twins and say are, you expect them to be similar twin-twin pairs, are they more similar if they're monozygotic? And in general, that has found, been found to be the case. So for a long time, there were just these uh, three studies published in the 1990s. And in every each of those first three cases, you can see there's quite a higher number here. And that's a measure known as proband-wise concordance. It's the proportion of affected <coughs> twins who have an affected co-twin uh, with SMI. And you can see this number's bigger than that, this is bigger than that, et cetera. Um, so all of those are pointing to genetic influence. And then along comes this study in 2005. To make it worse, it was done by an ex-research student of mine, <laughs> particularly <laughs> irritating, um, which uh, showed no difference at all between the monozygotic and dizygotic, and in fact found very low twin-twin similarity in both groups. Um, and interesting psychological phenomenon, I suppressed this for very many, for quite a long time. I just forgot about this result, and it just didn't fit into my mental model. And then I was forced to do a literature review, and I came across it, and I thought, we really have to try and explain this. Unfortunately, we were able to do so and in a very interesting way. The difference between this study and these three was that these three all used a fairly clinical definition of language impairment. So these were children whose parents had sought some sort of help for their child's problems. These were children from a general population survey where their parents had simply been asked to estimate their vocabulary size um, with various checklists, and they were not, the ones who were at the bottom uh, and who were deemed to have problems were not necessarily receiving any clinical services or hadn't, their parents might not have sought them. So what I suggested to uh, Emma Hayu Thomas was that we should look at, we had the information on whether they'd sought clinical services and would that make any difference. It made a huge difference. We suddenly got back to the territory I was familiar with, <coughs> a nice big difference between the two groups. So this is just defining specific language impairment in terms of whether you've sought clinical assistance. Why do you see clinical assistance is the next question. And the answer seemed to be, when we looked at the characteristics <coughs> of these children, it comes back to these problems with speaking. So you can have rather poor language skills, but if when you open your mouth to talk, you don't sound odd and you're fairly easy to understand, people don't tend to worry about you. Whereas if every time you open your mouth, people are trying to work out what it is that you said, 
then people are much more worried. So it does seem that these early, what we would call phonological problems, problems in producing the speech sounds, might be pretty key in identifying what are the types of problems that are more genetic in origin. But it just emphasizes how careful you have to be as well, and how a slight change in a, in a definition can make a big difference to what you find. <clears throat> so there's evidence for this fairly substantial genetic influence on SLI, but there's lots of remaining questions, including, well, is there just a gene that we can identify for SLI? We know there are genes for other sort of conditions. Is there the SLI gene? Um, or is there perhaps not one SLI gene, but lots of them? Maybe this is a whole group of different conditions, but we can find a gene for each one. What I'm going to argue is that, unfortunately, life is not so simple. But I'll show you the evidence, first of all. So here's the evidence that looked, first of all, very promising. This is a family that's actually very well known in the literature uh, because they were so impressive in terms of find, providing evidence for a single gene disorder that caused a speech and language problem. They're known as the KE family. They've been reported by various researchers who all disagree about what's wrong with them <laughs> to such an extent that when I visited America, people thought they were different families being described and thought we had a lot of these families in Britain uh, because people don't tend to cross-reference each other. But basically, um, what you see here is a family tree. So these are males, these are females. Females are nice and round. Males are sort of square. And if you're coloured in red, you've got a severe speech and language problem. And as you can see, there's a, an affected grandmother who had five children, and each of these, um, this is a geneticist's dream family because they had such a lot of children. Um, and you can see, though, that just by eyeballing it, that there seems to be about, if you've got an affected parent, you've got about a 50% chance of being affected yourself. And this is what you would call a classic Mendelian pattern of inheritance. It's equally likely in the males and the females, so it seems to be on one of the autosomes, not on a sex chromosome, uh, but it suggests that there must be a gene that is mutated in this family that's causing this problem. And indeed, such a gene has been found. Um, so this work was done uh, up the road, up the hill, in Oxford, uh, by my colleague Tony Monaco and his team, and they were able to find this gene known as FOXP2, which is on chromosome 7, which doesn't vary in the general population. <coughs> it's one of these genes that's not normally polymorphic, but in this family, the affected people <coughs> all had a mutation of just one single base in the DNA sequence. So everybody got very interested in FOXP2 and what does it do, where does it come from, and there was some very interesting work done comparing it across different species. This is a gene that is um, evident not just in man, but in mouse and in, in primates, and the differences between man and mouse are really very slight, and um, the differences between man and chimp uh, affect two amino acid positions. So this interested people because they said, well, basically most of the change in this gene, which is just arbitrary mutations which don't compromise survival and allow you to continue, uh, most of this occurred um, after the separation from chimpanzees, and it suggests there might be some selective advantage to the change that happened between chimpanzees and man. So everybody got very excited. Was this the gene for language? or at least the gene for grammar. Um, the people who've done the work on this gene all say, absolutely not. We should put this idea right out of our minds. It's far too simple-minded, because uh, it's not a gene of a simple kind. It's known as a transcription factor. It regulates the expression of other genes, and it's expressed in many, many organs, in the kidneys and in the heart, 
and heaven knows where, but in the brain as well. But it's, it's really not uh, a gene that is really specific in any way to language. Um, and furthermore, the affected members of the family appear to have some other problems beyond grammar, although less than you might have thought, given its uh, role as a transcription factor. But the argument's been put forward that really this is a gene which affects bits of the brain that are important for movement, for motor control, uh, and that that is why these people have these speech and language problems. Um, nevertheless, I would say that in itself might also turn out to be too simple, because um, these people do have trouble with some of these funny comprehension tests that I mentioned earlier. So it's been documented, for example, if you give them this sort of sentence, which is a bit fiendish, uh, the elephant pushing the boy is big because you've deliberately put the big next to the boy, who isn't big, rather than the elephant. And to decompose that, you have to do a sort of uh, extract some hierarchical structure whereby that's all one element and that describes that element. Um, and this is the sort of sentence that children with SLI have trouble with. And these members of the KE family also had tr evidence of trouble with it. So I think they may have some additional, rather more specific linguistic problems that aren't just explicable in terms of speech production. But nevertheless, I think it's reasonable to say that FOXP2 shouldn't be seen of as a grammar gene or something of that kind. It's, it is uh, much more complex than that. And, but it might be that amongst its many roles, it does help build a brain that can do those sorts of linguistic operations. But it's clearly not a gene that only does that. So that's my stance on that, although it's still very much a matter of a lot of debate between people. But is it the explanation for SLI? Of course, that's what was my interest, is that we might now have found the gene for SLI. And we immediately found out that no, it wasn't. Because um, <clears throat> this is the exception rather than the rule. Tony Monaco's team and other teams elsewhere in the, uh, in the world have taken larger groups of children and families where there's SLI and failed to find any evidence of any mutation to, of this gene. Few other cases have been found of the mutation associated with speech and language problems, but that's after a very comprehensive search, and it's, it's a tiny, tiny minority of the population with language problems. Also, if you look at the family trees of the sort of children I work with, they don't look as anything like as straightforward as that KE family, family tree uh, in the majority of cases. So what you find is this increase in other family members affected, but you can't really trace it through and say, ah, yes, we can see it coming down this line of a family. Uh, and unfortunately, what that tends to mean is that this is what's known as a complex uh, multifactorial disorder where, although it aggregates in families, that is, you get a higher rate within a family, it doesn't segregate. You can't sort of see this gene tr going through the generations according to any sort of simple rules. And unfortunately, this is how many, many disorders in medicine work, and it looks as if a, a lot of our common developmental disorders fit this pattern, that they're not caused by one particular thing. And in fact, it's been argued that that's partly why they're so common. If, if, something, uh, if there was a single gene that made you unable to communicate, it's likely it wouldn't have survived in the population over the years, because you would be at a disadvantage relative to other people. So what seems to survive are lots of genes that have small contributory effects, but which act together in a fairly complicated way, just as we know is the case for things like heart disease and diabetes. So the idea is that we have a whole distribution of abilities in language, and individual genes have small effects 
on, on any one of these, uh, on, on any one underlying skill, and you add it together, and you pretty well have a normal distribution. Which also explains why we have real difficulties with conditions like SLI, deciding where to put the cutoff between having a problem and not, because it genuinely is quite continuous. But the question then is, how are we going to discover the genes? So we think there's genes involved because these things run so strongly in families. Um, but how are we going to find them if they're all rather small genes that don't have much effect? And the approach that I have favoured is to say, well, let's take a step back and perhaps stop looking specifically at SLI, as it's clinically diagnosed as either present or absent, but let's try and look at some of the uh, underlying factors that we think are involved in causing SLI, um, the sort of linguistic and perceptual and cognitive things that seem to compromise language learning. And can we find genes that are involved in them? This is an approach that's very analogous to what often happens for physical disorders, where people try to find what they call an endophenotype, by which they mean um, some sort of physiological change that's correlated with the disorder. Um, but instead of looking for something physiological, I, I would argue we can also do this as psychologists looking at more cognitive things. And what are the sort of things I mean? Well, there are a number of theories around that have been around for some years about underlying factors that might cause SLI, and that's a good place to start. And I won't go into detail about these theories. One could give an entire hour-long presentation about any one of these, but... Um, just to say that they're rather differential types of theory of SLI, the first one of which suggests that it's a secondary consequence of some sort of auditory problem, the second of which attributes it to short-term memory problems of a particular kind, and the third which says, no, it's actually something more specific to the linguistic system. So I'll just give you a little bit of information on this. Um, the auditory repetition test is a test that we use to measure this auditory processing problem that's been proposed... Uh, by a very influential psychologist called Paula Talal. And Paula Talal argued these children aren't deaf. We know they can hear sounds, they can detect sounds, but what they might have difficulty doing is telling sounds apart, um, particularly if they're rather brief um, or very rapid. And she has had a whole research career <coughs> attempting to evaluate that idea. And she, uh, in, in conjunction with her, I was involved in a study where we tried some of her measures of auditory processing with twins, and if I can find my cursor, I might be able to play you with some sounds. Otherwise, I'll have to do, imitate them myself, which is much harder. <laughs> Here we go. Here's. So the sort of thing the child is asked to do is they're, first of all, trained to listen for um, a high tone or a low tone and to press one button for a high tone and one for a low tone. And when you're confident that they can do that, you start seeing if they can press the buttons to represent tone sequence. So this is the sort of thing they have to listen to. <coughs> Okay, that's an easy one, but this is a hard one. So you can vary the length and you can vary the speed, and both of those make it harder. And we knew from prior work that a test like this is something that children with SLI do find harder than matched control children. And Talal has built up a whole theory of this is, you know, underlying difficulties they have with le language learning is that they don't really, according to her, have a linguistic problem they have a problem in perceiving sound, which leads on to language difficulties. That's rather different from the next type of theory, which says, actually, the, the difficulty is one with a memory system that humans seem to have evolved for language learning, which allows us to hear a sequence of speech sounds and immediately retain it for a brief period of time, 
which is a sort of skill you need for learning the name of somebody you've not heard before or learning a novel word. And it's a very simple test that you use to evaluate this. You give them things like hampent. You say hampent, and the child has to repeat hampent, uh, or doppelate. And you can go and get, again, you can increase the length. That seems to be a factor that particularly gives children difficulty. You might say confrontially or crystoractional. So they're things that sound like words but are unfamiliar to the child. And this, again, has been shown to be quite a sensitive test to specific language impairment. Children with SLI have difficulty. And now you might say the children you've seen on the videos wouldn't be able to say this anyway because they've got such a lot of problems in speech production. But the interesting thing is that you find that this is typically used with rather older children who have overcome those problems with speech production. And what you find is that even though they can produce the sounds in isolation, what they have is a lot of difficulty producing these long sequences. And it's thought to be more of a problem with remembering them than physically getting your mouth around them. Then the third type of test that we used was one that emphasizes these problems with grammatical morphology that children have, where they just seem to have these difficulties putting on past tense endings. So you give the child little pictures, and this is uh, materials I was lent by Mabel Rice, who works in the US, who kindly let me have access to her test materials before they were published. And you say things like, here the boy's raking, now he's done, tell me what he did, and the child is given some practice items and trained to say things like, uh, he raked the leaves. And you're listening to that past tense ending. And then there's a third person singular analog. Here's a farmer. Tell me what a farmer does. And the child might say, well, he feeds the pig. Or he, they might say, he feed the pig. And if they live in the country, they might say, he killed the pig. But <laughs> you don't really mind what verb they use. What you're listening for is the third person singular ending, that S on the end. Um, which is left off quite frequently by children with SLI. Now, I won't go for the interest of time into all the data we have on this because this work is all written up, but uh, the conclusions from using these different measures turned out to be really rather fascinating because the different tasks all behave differently. And I was rather amazed by this because um, it's not what I would have expected. And I should say I'm summarising results from two separate studies here. We didn't do, it would be nice to do a single study with the same children on all measures, but we didn't. This has evolved over time. So there's two sets of twin samples that are incorporated here. But essentially, on that auditory task with the beeps, we found that twins resembled each other quite closely, but it didn't make any difference whether they were monozygotic or zygotic. Uh, they, they tended to just be similar to one another, and that points to an environmental influence on this skill. In fact, we found it correlated to, to some extent with uh, musical experience in the home, which we just asked parents about in the questionnaire. Perhaps not so surprising. But we actually didn't find any evidence that it was picking up any kind of genetic problem. This was quite different from the phonological short-term memory, where we found quite striking differences in similarity. So monozygotic twins, if one had a problem with that repeating non-words, the other had a problem. Dizygotic twins, it could go one way or another. You just found this closer similarity, and it translated, when you did the sums, into a really very strong genetic effect on this particular task. Morphosyntax was also coming out as very strong genetic effect, also monozygotic twins more similar than dizygotic. But I thought, well, it might be that they're really just different measures of the same thing. Maybe if you can't remember sounds, then you don't learn to put the past tense endings on. But in fact, we can check that out by looking across these two and saying, if we've got one twin who's bad at this, is the other twin bad at this? We can sort of really treat them, are they, do they act as proxies for one another? 
And they didn't at all. They were not very strongly correlated. So it was rather more interesting and suggested we have these different factors that can compromise your language development, uh, but which have rather different underlying causes. And furthermore, we found that if we then looked at which of these children had actually gone to receive a clinical diagnosis, the more of these problems you had, the more likely you were to be diagnosed SLI. So although um, these disorders were, we feel, in, distinct in terms of their underlying causes, obviously some children would have a constellation of problems. And it was these poor little ones in the middle who were typically struggling most, perhaps not surprising at one level, but it suggested to us that we really should bear, not try to think of the cause of these disorders, but be aware that it seems to result from a constellation of quite common problems. And that's what really this slide says, that different deficits may have different underlying causes, but the impact on language is really when you get different things co-occurring, different risk factors. So I just want to close by saying a little bit about colleagues of mine in the Wellcome Trust Centre for Human Genetics who've taken this further to try and identify the genes that are underlying all of this. I'm not a molecular geneticist and uh, couldn't possibly uh, do this work, but I have the good fortune to be working in Oxford where we really do have a stellar group of geneticists just up the hill. And they are not just stellar, but they're also highly collaborative. And we've, over the years, forged a really useful collaboration where psychologists and geneticists make extreme efforts to communicate with one another. And I think this is probably unique in the world to have the degree of interaction between the two disciplines that we have here. And I'm delighted that my colleagues, Diane Newbury, Simon Fisher, and Tony Monaco, are here and are people that I can work with. It's been enormous fun. So just to say a little bit about what's happened over many years of painstaking work, they do studies where they get large groups of people and their relatives who have SLI and start looking for genetic similarities and differences between them at the level of analysing the DNA. <clears throat> and they found three what they would call genetic variants, so three bits of DNA where um, it can vary, these sort of polymorphic regions uh, that are associated with how well or poorly you do on non-word repetition in SLI. And because there's such a lot of DNA that you can potentially look at, you have, you have to be fairly scrupulous about checking your findings and replicating them before you take them seriously. And this group is very good at doing that. They don't get overexcited until they're fairly confident that they can show this in more than one sample. And they found two, and published earlier this year, two genes on chromosome 16 that appear to act additively um, and which uh, affect performance on non-word repetition. And interestingly, um, they found the third gene, which is a downstream target of FOXP2. So it seems to be in the same pathway. It's not FOXP2, but it would seem to be part of the same biological pathway, which makes a lot of sense. They've got one set of results on associating uh, poor performance on verb morphology, and it's on a different gene, on a different chromosome, which would fit with the behavioural data, suggesting there are genetic effects on this, but they're not the same. And this is just to show you the data on these two genes that were published earlier this year, a figure from Diane Newbury. Now, the interesting thing about this is it's so different from what you see with FOXP2. If you have a FOXP2 mutation, A, it's very unusual, you wouldn't see it in, in the usual population, and B, it has a really big effect. It really knocks down your language and speech performance. But these are common in the general population. These are really just things that you may find 40% of people have got this risk version, might not be as high as that, 20%, 10%, but 
Lots of, lots of people in this room have probably got the risk genes. Uh, and what they're associated with is not a dramatic deficit. This is a change if you've got the non-risk form scale score of 94 to 88. In term, those of you into standard deviations, that's about, uh, I think, uh, about 15 points is a standard deviation. So it's about half a standard deviation or so. It's not massive. And indeed, to have just one of these risk genes, is uh, one of these um, copies of the, of the risky form, is, is it, it goes down quantitatively, but it has a very small effect. Um, and this is true for both these genes. They look very similar. And if you put them together, they seem to just add up. So again, this is a, I'm sorry about this table. I tried to do something clever with it, with make it a more interesting plot, but failed miserably. But essentially, here's somebody who's not got the risk version at all, and they've got a spot-on averaged normal repetition score. And you can trace along and say, these are people who've got one copy of the risk form of this gene, two copies, and in this direction, it's this other gene. You put them all together. These are people who've got the maximum risk. And so this is the, the amount of difference when you put the two together. They seem to add up. But notice that this is a very different view of genetics from let's find the gene. And it also is going to make it very complicated trying to give people any sort of genetic counselling about risks because we're talking about tiny effects um, that you, many of us will walk around and have these risk forms without suffering any obvious ill effect. And it fits in with the fact that when we test parents on things like normal repetition, we often find people who are not aware that they have any problems at all, but are actually somewhat down on non-word repetition. But since nobody is really required to go around repeating non-words in everyday life, they're not really suffering for it. It's only when you have that in conjunction with other things that you're in trouble. So really, I have come around many circles in my work in this field, um, where I, I have to confess I started out thinking, I want to find the cause of SLI. And I imagined that we would find perhaps a psychological cause or a cognitive cause, some sort of thing these children couldn't do, some auditory deficit that would explain their problems and that we could try and fix and that would be linked to a single gene. But in I'm, and the only comfort I get for the fact that it's all much more complicated is that so are most other things that are common in, in everyday life and that the same problems are confronting people working on common everyday diseases like diabetes and heart disease. So in a sense, the conditions I'm working on are in line with those in terms of the patterns that we're finding. So it does support the notion that language involves multiple cognitive processes, but I think that we should probably give up looking for a single cause. There might be the odd child where you can track their problems to a single cause, but for most of these developmental disorders, it's actually much more complicated than that, and perhaps that's in part because if one thing goes wrong or isn't quite optimal, language is a remarkably resilient function and usually survives anyway. Well, I think I've <coughs> spoken long enough. If any of you want to check out the background of this work, there will be some references on my website, as well as lots of downloadable papers on this topic. But meanwhile, I'm very happy to take questions. Thank you. <laughs>